It's not just good conversation, it's your voice on the weekends. Weekends with Kenny Rahmeyer on News Radio KLBJ. Like most of KLBJ, you're so cute to that side. Thanks for your uh, time and let me talk, and also I enjoy your show. Yeah, well, just stay fast, Kenny. Don't change. Come on, talk to me. What's going on? What's going on? Good afternoon to you. Thanks a lot for being with us on the weekends here on News Radio KLBJ and this last Sunday afternoon, January. What a news day it is. I'm Kenny Rahmeyer with you live and local here on KLBJ. Sadly, U.S. service members killed in the Mideast. I have all the latest on that for you, that huge development this afternoon. And we'll talk about potentially what's next in that part of the world. Also, the Biden administration is pressuring Israel to scale back its military efforts in Gaza using weapons deliveries as leverage. The latest on that for you here on KLBJ. Meantime, over in the Ukraine, the Biden administration is putting together a new strategy that will de-emphasize helping Ukraine win back territory And we'll see where that goes. And then there's also a new report of corruption on weapons deliveries out of the Ukraine as well. And then, of course, the border standoff between Texas and the Biden administration. That continues even as articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas have been announced today. And then, not to be uh, left out, in presidential politics, both the Wall Street Journal... And the New York Times, big feature articles this weekend, claiming the upcoming presidential race will be the longest presidential campaign ever. So we have that to look forward to. And some local Austin news as well, including that last news story you just heard in Fox News about Elon Musk and X going to be opening of a new of a moderator uh, content office of some kind here in Austin. A hundred people have the latest on that for you from the Business Insider on News Radio KLBJ. Of course, as we go along this afternoon, you are welcome to join us. Give us a call or send us a text at 512 836 0590. The big headline of the day so far three U.S. troops killed, at least 34 more were injured. In Jordan, this was an aerial drone assault carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. This from the Washington Post just before we came on the air today. This one-way attack drone struck the living quarters of a U.S. base there, causing injuries ranging from cuts and bruises to brain injuries and some that required a medical evacuation. The number of wounded expected to rise, according to the Post, as more troops report injuries. And so officials are trying to determine why the air defense failed at this base. The U.S. troops there are serving on an advise and assist mission 
with their Jordanian counterparts. So these are the first U.S. combat fatalities since the war in Gaza. And it uh, immediately raises the questions of, okay, how and where and when is the Pentagon going to respond? It's unclear from which country the attack was launched, but the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which is one of those Iran-backed militant groups, they're claiming responsibility for the attack, according to a senior official who spoke to the Washington Post. I found some reporting by the Pentagon reporter for Fox News, Jennifer Griffin, especially good this afternoon. Now, here's one of the first of her reports talking about a lot of frustration with the high command in the Pentagon over things the Biden administration should have done a long time ago. This is bound to test not only the White House, but also U.S. Central Command. We know that there has been a great deal of frustration among top senior U.S. military officials thinking that uh, that the U.S. needed to strike back harder against Iran, that Iran was not getting the deterrent message. There have been 159 attacks on almost on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria and now Jordan. Uh, it was only a matter of time before some of those, uh, those drones, one-way attack drones that Iran has provided to its proxies got through. And she went on to report there's a lot of speculation now in the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill and elsewhere about what's next. There's a very significant plan that could be activated uh, to target Iranian targets and Iranian proxy targets. The question is, uh, usually what you see in this case is that the U.S. military will wait for a time and place of its choosing uh, to carry out those strikes. But there is going to be tremendous pressure on the administration to escalate and to respond forcefully uh, to end these uh, these attacks on U.S. forces, uh, because clearly Tehran is not getting the message. And um, with these daily attacks using the proxy forces, very thinly veiled, um, it, none of these proxy forces would be able to strike without the um, significant help from Iran. Yeah, and the president uh, said today that uh, the United States would hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. There were plenty of calls, of course, from Capitol Hill for the administration to, to do something and, and to do it quickly, including the senior U.S. Senator from Texas, John Cornyn, who uh, put out uh, something on uh, social media, said, target Tehran. And he later clarified it wasn't a call to bomb Iranian civilians. There were other of uh, admonitions, I suppose, or encouragements from various members of Congress for the administration to act and to do it quickly. A Fox congressional reporter Chad Pergram has uh, has the latest for us on that. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, he just indicated, quote, uh, that America must send a crystal clear message across the globe that attacks on our troops will not be tolerated. I specifically asked of whether or not he's gotten a phone call or notification or any briefing here about this, but uh, nothing on that. Tom Cotton, the Republican senator from Arkansas, says that uh, devastating military reaction must be struck against Iran and across the Middle East. I will direct you to the specificity of Senator Cotton's statement, who says in Iran, 
And he said anything less would confirm that uh, President Biden is unworthy of being the president of the United States. He would call him a coward. Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator from uh, uh, South Carolina, said, quote, hit Iran and hit them hard. You know, the uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown, was interviewed on ABC's This Week program. In fairness, I believe this interview was conducted before these U.S. soldiers were killed. In any event, I think some of the comments, as the moderator, Martha Raddatz from ABC, was asking the chairman about what's going on in the Mideast, and specifically with respect to these attacks from the Iran-backed proxies on U.S. troops. I think some of his comments are, are somewhat instructive to the extent that it, it kind of uh, really underscores the administration's, at least in my view, the, the tepid, timid response to so many of these attacks, whether it's uh, on commercial vessels or U.S. ships in the Red Sea and, and in that you know vicinity, or just on these, uh, as Jennifer Griffin pointed out just a moment ago, what, 159 times uh, U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria have been attacked by these Iranian-backed militia groups. And so a couple of his comments, he said there's a delicate balance to be struck between the U.S. goal of deterrence in the Mideast region while also protecting U.S. forces. Could we stop right there? I'd have to say the administration is, is failing miserably on that front. Very little deterrence we're seeing so far, and sadly, some U.S. troops have now been killed. Others have been injured before this, but now three killed and, and many more injured. The general, C.Q. Brown, also told ABC that the American airstrikes on the Houthi rebels, quote, have had an impact, end quote, though he declined to say by how much. These strikes on these Iranian-backed militia groups in Iraq have resulted, of course, in a lot of pressure in that part of the world for the United States to, to simply pull our troops out of Iraq and out of that region. Uh, Jennifer Griffin from the Pentagon actually had some and thoughts on that development as well. Talks with the Iraqi government have begun about the future of U.S. troops inside Iraq. It is clear that Iran has unleashed all of its proxies against U.S. bases and U.S. forces, as well as the Houthis firing on ships in the Red Sea, because they are trying to push the U.S. out of the Middle East. Iran believes that with enough pressure from these proxy groups, and they are willing to sacrifice these proxy groups, and the U.S. so far has uh, drawn a line at striking inside Iran or taking out anything, uh, any significant targets that Iran would be concerned about because they're concerned about spreading the conflict. And here's an angle on this story that clearly hasn't received a whole lot of attention. For those of us who are not fans of the Biden administration, it just kind of underscores how lame all this talk was about all his many, many years of diplomatic and foreign policy experience and how that was going to be such a tremendous win for the United States on the foreign policy front if he were to be elected president of the United States and I suppose to be reelected. The story is the United States has failed in two days of talks with the Chinese 
trying to get China to pressure Iran to stop the Houthi attacks on these commercial shipping vessels in the Red Sea. Our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, was meeting with China's foreign minister for a couple of days in Thailand on Friday and and yesterday. The talks ended with no sign that China's willing to take decisive steps to use its economic influence on Iran. This report also says the administration is also hitting a brick wall and trying to prod Beijing to convince North Korea to scale back its nuclear weapons program. And, by the way, China, could you also curtail your support for Russia's war on Ukraine? And so the Chinese have basically told the United States to go pound sand on all of those fronts and to top it off, the icing on the cake, as Sullivan was meeting with the Chinese foreign minister just to kind of show, I suppose, the United States who's really boss with all of this stuff. It was at the same time that Sullivan's meeting with the Chinese foreign minister that Beijing sent dozens of military aircraft and naval ships toward Taiwan. And, and many of those were in the Strait of, of Taiwan. The reports are that China sees greater value in sitting on the sidelines as all of this stuff's going on between Ukraine and Russia, between the United States and all these Iranian-backed proxies. And, and they're kind of sitting in the catbird seat and telling uh, Biden... Never mind. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. We're just getting started. Lots to talk about this afternoon. You can give us a call or send us a text right here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rawmeyer right back with you here live and local this afternoon on News Radio KLBJ. I want to touch on a couple of other foreign policy-related stories before we get to some news a little closer to home here. The Biden administration discussing using weaponry sales to Israel as leverage to convince the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu there in Israel to scale back its military assault in the Gaza Strip. This is at the direction of the White House. The Pentagon's reviewing what re- weaponry Israel has requested that could be used as leverage. They said no decisions have been made. The sources said Israeli officials continued to ask the administration for more weapons, including large aerial bombs, ammunition, and air defenses. Now, right along with that, it's reported U.S. negotiators are making progress on a potential agreement under which Israel would pause its military operations against Hamas in Gaza for two months. This news has been out there for a while, but the negotiations are ongoing. And this would be in exchange for the release of more than 100 hostages. So the way this deal is being negotiated in the first phase, the fighting would stop and that would allow for the remaining women, elderly, and wounded hostages to be released by Hamas. And then Israel and Hamas would try to work out details during that first 30 days for a second phase of the plan where Israeli soldiers and civilian men would be released and then It also calls for Israel to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. So this deal that's being discussed wouldn't end the war. U.S. officials are hopeful, though, that 
any kind of agreement like this will lay the groundwork for some kind of durable resolution to the Israeli-Hamas conflict. The New York Times was reporting on all this yesterday. And then the Wall Street Journal had an interesting piece today, said as much as 80% of Hamas's vast tunnels under Gaza, that network of tunnels, remains intact. Trying to take out Hamas's ability to use those tunnels has been one of the key parts of Israel's strategy so far. They've been going after those tunnels, trying to capture the top Hamas leaders, try to rescue the remaining Israeli hostages. And these tunnels, I've seen estimates anywhere from 300 miles to 500 miles underneath all of the Gaza area there. And, of course, this is uh, a safe storage place for weapons and ammunition for Hamas. It's a hiding place for their fighters, hiding place for the command and control centers for the leadership. And, of course, it allows them to maneuver around the Gaza Strip unexposed to Israeli fire. And so Israel's tried many different ways to clear out the tunnels, installing pumps to flood them with water from the Mediterranean. They tried to destroy them with airstrikes and liquid explosives. They've been searching them with dogs and robots and then trying to just destroy the entrances and and to raid them with highly trained soldiers. But still, much of that tunnel network remains intact, according to the Wall Street Journal. It says U.S. and Israeli officials have had a difficult time assessing exactly how much destruction is on the tunnels or has taken place there. They can't say for certain how many miles of tunnels exist, so that's how it's hard to know, just exactly on a percentage basis, how much of the tunnels have been taken out. They think 20 to 40% have been rendered damaged or inoperable, much of that in northern Gaza. 512-836-0590. You can give us a call or send us a text here. On KLBJ, what do you make of all these developments in the Mideast, including three U.S. soldiers have now been killed and at least 34-plus have been injured in the latest Iran-backed militant group strike on a, on a base there in northern Jordan. 512-836-0590. And then let's go to another part of the world, Ukraine against Russia. This from the Washington Post. The Biden administration is putting together a new strategy that would de-emphasize winning back territory and focusing instead on helping Ukraine fend off any new Russian advances while moving toward a long-term goal of just strengthening the Ukrainian fighting force and the economy. A sharp change in strategy from last year, according to the Post. The idea is for Ukraine to be able to hold its position on the battlefield for now and then get their fighting forces on a more sustainable path for the long term. And so the United States is planning a a part of a multilateral effort. Nearly three dozen countries have been backing Ukraine. They're looking for a commitment to continue to to pledge long-term security and economic support. And all of this, the backdrop is it was a a very disappointing counteroffensive waged by the Ukrainians back in the spring and summer 
time frame. So each one of these countries is preparing a document to outline its specific commitments for at least 10 years in the future. Britain's already made its 10-year agreement with Ukraine and made it public last week. France is expected to be next. And, of course, this piece says the success of this strategy depends almost entirely on who else? The United States. We're by far the largest donor of money and equipment. And, and we're the ones coordinating this multilateral effort. So this spring, the Biden administration hopes to release its 10-year commitment, which is now being compiled by the State Department. I got to say, I bet there's a lot of us who can't wait to see that. We don't know what this administration is going to do in the Ukraine in the next 10 days, much less for the next 10 years. According to U.S. officials in this piece, the American document is going to guarantee support for short-term military operations, as well as building a future Ukrainian military force that can deter Russian aggression. The president of Ukraine, Zelensky, insists Ukraine's still on the offensive. U.S. policymakers who met recently with Zelensky in private say Zelensky has doubts about how ambitious the country Ukraine is going to be able to be in the coming year without any clarity from the United States about future military assistance. And uh, U.S. policymakers say they expect this war is going to eventually end through negotiations. They don't think Putin's serious about any talks this year because he's holding out hope that Trump's going to win back the presidency in November. That, according to this piece, out of the Washington Post. So there's a pretty good rundown of all of the latest developments, and there's a whole lot of them over in the Mideast and all around the world. And so when we come right back after a quick news break, the latest on what's going on down on our southern border, latest on these articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary, some political news, some Austin news, and a whole lot more. Stay with us here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rahmeyer right back with you here live and local on News Radio KLBJ. Thanks a lot for being with us this afternoon. House Republicans have announced two articles of impeachment today against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. The Republicans argue in the first article of impeachment that Mayorkas has failed to enforce U.S. immigration policies at our nation's border and has disregarded laws passed by Congress and has ignored court orders. They also say in the second charge, it's a breach of public trust, accusing Mayorkas of making false statements and obstructing oversight of the Department of Homeland Security. House Speaker Mike Johnson said in a letter on Friday that he would hold a vote on impeaching Mayorkas, quote, as soon as possible, end quote. Here's a couple of comments, one from local U.S. Congressman Michael McCall and also from uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik in New York about these articles of impeachment dropped today by the Republicans. I love the fact we're going to try to legislation up here but the fact is president biden could change this tomorrow if he just changed uh the executive orders they did on day one that was actually mccall talking about the border bill we're going to talk about that in a second here's mccall talking about uh, the impeachment uh, proceedings that are are pending now uh, along with uh, elise stefanik from new york 
I call him the architect of destruction. Uh, Eight million encounters, uh, 300 on the terror watch list, 200 million people dead now thanks to fentanyl poisoning that this one man is responsible for. I think that is a dereliction of duty. Every state is a border state, so the committee will mark up those articles of impeachment and work through the process to bring them to the floor. All right, so it sounds like they're going to fast track this thing. And while it's being widely panned as as just show and it's all politics and there's no basis, you know, for all of this. Again, I think it was last week's program. I suggested, and I don't know what the Republicans are waiting for, especially as the White House and the Democrats are now trying to spin all of this immigration stuff as the fault of the Republicans. And the Republicans are holding up progress and Trump doesn't want a deal and, and all the rest, right? You've heard it and you're going to keep hearing it. Get that little 30-second or a minute montage. It could be a whole hour of Mayorkas in front of the various congressional committees talking about how the border is secure and, and all the rest. Talk about how the vice president has done virtually nothing. And then have in the background the streams of thousands of illegals that continue to cross the border on a daily basis, in spite of what the administration has been telling the American people, in spite of their lack of doing anything meaningful about this, let's face it, this issue was not on their radar screen whatsoever for three years until all the polling data started coming out from Iowa and New Hampshire of, gee, what a big issue immigration is on the minds of the American people. And Biden's low approval numbers on how he's handling all this. So now we're supposed to have amnesia about the last three years. And we're supposed to believe that Biden now has religion on, oh, my gosh, he's bound and determined to to do something about this. Right. We, I mean, here was uh, he's been in South Carolina this weekend. Here he is talking about it. The first bill I introduced was for a massive change in security at our border. Two months ago, my team beginning to work with a bipartisan group of senators to put together the toughest, smartest, fairest border security bill in history. The best one the nation's ever seen. Yeah, I can tell you back in the computer days, these kinds of proposals where it's a lot of talk and you haven't seen any meaningful product yet, we used to call it vaporware. Vaporware. That's exactly what we got going on here. Nobody has seen this deal. There's some members of Congress who are out on Sunday TV news shows today trying to defend it. One of those was the lead negotiator for the Republicans, Senator James Langford from Oklahoma. He was on Fox News. He said the critics of the bill are just relying on Internet rumors to trash the bill before they have seen it. He's saying the text of this proposal is expected out very soon, even though it's getting a whole lot of criticism from Republicans. And and he's saying that this bill is going to focus on getting us to zero illegal crossings per day. That certainly runs counter. If they're just internet rumors, okay. But it certainly runs counter to a, a lot of the reports where, for example, Border Patrol agents would be required to remove migrants it encounters if they see a 5,000 or more per week or 8,500 in a single day. And that the Homeland Security Department would have an option of acting 
at a daily average of 4,000 over a week. How many bean counters and, and accounting professionals are going to have down there counting and making sure that they're keeping track of all the numbers before the Border Patrol knows what to do and how to do it, right? What a joke all this is. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson said yesterday the president already has the power to stop illegals from being released in the country. He's just not using it. Here's a, a little bit more of what the lead negotiator for the Republicans, James Lankford, was saying as he was trying to defend this deal on Fox this morning. We're focused on how many people can we process quickly and then deport out of the country, not release into the country. It would be absolutely absurd for anyone to be able to propose something to say we're just going to slow the number of releases. We're focused on how do we actually enforce our border and get us back to zero people actually crossing the border illegally. It is our constitutional obligation to be able to secure our country as fast as we can secure our country. This puts in mandatory pieces that haven't been there in the past to make this administration actually enforce the law. Who's buying this? It's vaporware, right? I'm going to keep coming back to that. These politicians and and President Biden are telling us now that he's had this dramatic pivot and we're going to go from literally tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands in a given month down to zero. And we're supposed to believe this this new emergency authority now is going to be in place and that uh, President Biden is going to pull the, the switch on this on such a regular basis? How bogus is that? Please, what an insult to our intelligence. And, and one of the things, this is from Reuters, reporting on the, the various components or the elements of what this deal might look like. And, and we may see it this next week. It may be, you know, several days after that. Who knows? But all this emergency authority that we're hearing about the president would have to shut down the border when the border becomes overwhelmed. And the president said, if I had that authority, I'd use it the day I signed the bill into law. Please define overwhelmed, sir. How many different ways can we define overwhelmed? How many numbers, how many people per month? equals overwhelmed, the hundreds of thousands that come across the encounters in a given month on a daily basis. What's, what's overwhelmed mean? How do we define that? How overwhelmed does our social network need to be stretched as a country for medical care, for just housing and food for all these illegals? Let's take it city by city. Where do you want to start? Chicago, New York City, Denver, Philadelphia. Let's go right down the list. Not to mention all the border towns and cities here in Texas that have been overwhelmed with all this stuff for years. So to say we're, we're going to really bring the hammer down when our resources and, and our capabilities are overwhelmed, that's just laughable. Nobody's buying that. So little wonder people like the former president, Donald Trump, saying a bad border deal is far worse than no border deal. It's like, come on. I mean, I just saw this story out of the Denver Post. Denver's going to begin ordering these illegals that are in its shelter system to leave on February 5th. They've been there for a certain number of days. And the city has taken in 40,000 plus 
many of them from Texas, overcrowded, over budget. They spent nearly $25 million so far. That was through September of last year, and uh, the budget is for over $100 million for this year. That, according to NBC News, that's one city trying to deal with all this stuff. Now, so what does overwhelmed mean, sir? How about 50 people who appeared on the terror watch list trying to get into the border so far this fiscal year, not to mention the, the record 170-some on the terrorist watch list who came in last year? Does that equal overwhelmed? Sir, how about this? This week, U.S. Border Patrol agents caught two child sex offenders, a convicted murderer, a felon trying to cross the border illegally. Does that equate to overwhelmed, sir? That was just in one week. And those are the ones we catch. 512-836-0590. And um, on the icing on the cake here, I suppose... You got a convoy of protesters now. This reported by News Nation, a convoy of protesters. They've deemed themselves God's army, and they're reportedly on their way to the southern border next week. They're saying this is the Take Our Border Back convoy. They say their mission is to stand up against the globalists who are conspiring to keep the U.S. border open. They're reportedly planning to leave tomorrow from Virginia Beach, Virginia drive through the southeast, stopovers in Florida and Louisiana before they get to Texas. And then they're going to have three separate rallies, February 3rd in Texas, another in Arizona, and then another in California. And this group's calling on active and retired law enforcement, military, veterans, elected officials, other so-called law-abiding, freedom-loving Americans to join their cause. So, I'm going to suggest there's more downside than upside to this idea. Their hearts may be in the right place. I don't think with all the help, the National Guard, the DPS, the Border Patrol, everything, do you think they need a little more assistance there from these, from these guys? Or maybe this is just another indicator of what overwhelmed means, Mr. President, when citizens are ready to take matters into their own hands because they just can't take it anymore. So how many different ways can we define overwhelmed? And the president and the administration and some members of Congress saying, yeah, yeah, but that's the, that's the gateway that we're going to use so we know when to pull the plug and stop people from coming in. What a, what a, this is just one debacle on top of another is what's in the making here. And, of course, this is something that's coming together in the Senate. Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, He's the lead negotiator for the Democrats. He says he's confident enough that Republicans in the Senate are going to support this legislation for it to pass. There's going to be enough Republicans to help pass this deal. And then, of course, we've already heard it's uh, dead on arrival in the House. So what's next? Who knows? 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. We come right back. A big dose of presidential politics, some local news, and a whole lot more coming up here on KLBJ. Thanks for being with us on News Radio KLBJ. Kenny Rahmeyer with you. Before we leave the southern border, just one other uh, sound clip for you here from our Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick as uh, Texas Governor Abbott is over in India on one of those commerce trips here for several days. But uh, it's pretty obvious, at least for now, the Biden administration is backing off.
in trying to take on anything that Texas has in place down on the border. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was on Fox today talking about that, and he essentially said, we're not backing down. What we're doing in Texas works. For the Biden administration and Joe Biden and Mayorkas want to come in and cut the wire when we're having success makes no sense to anyone, even the rank and file border patrol on the border, that we work very well with. They had snipped it and cut it. We we would have replaced it right away. We're going to put wire down the entire border. It seems like it's going to go on and on and on, just like our presidential campaign now, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, big feature pieces this weekend. I won't have time to do them justice here, but essentially this is going to be the longest presidential campaign ever if it holds that Biden and Trump are the two candidates. And so far that, that appears to be what's happening here. The oldest pair of presidential nominees in U.S. history. And it could be the longest general election campaign in U.S. history. The Journal reports this is going to uh, test the stamina of the two nominees. I'd say that's, that's an understatement. Hundreds of millions of advertising dollars expected to be poured into this uh, race. So much of it in a dozen swing states. Estimates are over $10 billion. That's up 13% just from the 2019-2020 campaign cycle. That out of the Wall Street Journal. And then the New York Times says this is going to be one of the longest in modern history. And that Biden and Trump face a series of unusual strategic decisions in the weeks ahead. Now, before I keep quoting from the New York Times here, notice how the Times is starting to lay the groundwork for how we're not going to see a whole lot of Biden. Here's back to the New York Times piece, the strategic decisions in the weeks ahead. How much of the next nine months do they devote to sending Trump and Biden across the country for rallies? I'm guessing Trump will be doing it a lot. Biden, hardly none. Back to the Times. Is it better to deploy attacks on opponents now or wait until the conventions when... Supposedly more people are paying attention. This nonstop TV advertising loses its potency over nine months. You're going to have people throwing bricks at the TVs, right? I mean, and then given unfavorable views of both men, according to the Times, should they limit their public appearances and let the campaign be carried by surrogates and advertisements? So there you go. There's the predicate. There's the New York Times laying the groundwork, saying don't expect to see a whole lot of Biden anytime soon. Time says strategic decisions and missteps made now could prove critical come November. With polls suggesting a down-to-the-wire contest between two polarizing and combative candidates. Yeah, well, polarizing, yes. Combative, certainly Trump. I don't know. I'm not sure how much gas uh, President Biden's got left in in the tank there to be combative. Nikki Haley making a little bit of news today. She was on NBC's Meet the Press. She said she's committed to staying in the the race, at least through Super Tuesday. She wouldn't say whether she's still going to be in a race by the time the convention rolls around in July. Super Tuesday, by the way, is March 5th. Haley said she doesn't need a win in South Carolina to keep her campaign alive, but she did say this. 
What I do think I need to do is I need to show that I'm building momentum. I need to show that I'm stronger in South Carolina than New Hampshire. Does that have to be a win? I don't think that necessarily has to be a win, but it certainly has to be better than what I did in New Hampshire, and it certainly has to be close. Yeah, well, okay. One thing I've read is a big piece out of the New York Times because her her poll numbers in South Carolina are awful. And the question is, well, gee, for somebody who was a two-term governor and a, and a politician before that in that state, how come she doesn't have any more support? No, not, not many uh, endorsements or anything like that. The story is, if you believe the New York Times piece, is that as she was climbing the ladder of success, in politics there in South Carolina, she left a lot of dead bodies by the roadside. That she wasn't exactly real popular, wasn't one of the good old boys there in South Carolina politics, and maybe that helped her on the way up, but that's one of the reasons she's not getting a whole lot of love in her home state. Got a report today that says a lot of Republican lawmakers, especially in the Senate, are holding out on endorsing former President Trump, and and a lot of them are still sitting on the sidelines and may for quite some time. Here's another, I think, a predicate, another indicator of what we have to look forward to in the absence of Biden, who won't be out on the campaign trail very much. Biden's campaign is reportedly trying to organize a first-of-his-kind fundraiser. The idea is that three Democrat presidents, Biden, Clinton, and Obama, are going to appear together at a big fundraiser this spring. Now, that may draw a whole lot of money. I'm suggesting, though, what it really does is sets up for the American audience to be ready to see a whole lot of Clinton and Obama in place of Biden out on the campaign trail. That's what I think we're likely to see there. A lot of talk about uh, third parties, and is anything going to come out of that? This no-labels group seems to not be getting a whole lot of traction. There were reports, New York Post, for one, that said people working closely with Trump early on thought about recruiting Robert F. Kennedy to serve as Trump's running mate. I've seen Trump's team denying that on Twitter this weekend, Kennedy floating the possibility of running with the Libertarian Party. And uh, apparently he's going to be making um, uh, an address at the California Libertarian Party convention. And so it remains to be seen if he or anybody else, whether that's Haley jumping ship or no labels or who knows, if any kind of third party effort is going to gain any traction in this election. And I got to work this in as we leave presidential politics here, because I was mocked and and laughed at and made fun of when over the holidays, I was sitting in for Mark and and Melinda, and we brought up uh, the topic about whether Taylor Swift could sway the election outcome. Just maybe. All right, so out of the Daily Mail, a new poll finds that close to 20% of voters would likely back the candidate endorsed by Taylor Swift. Now, in a close race, where was it? 40,000-some votes was the winning margin the last time around between Trump and Biden. You know, the experts are saying 18% of voters say they'd be more likely or significantly more likely to vote for a candidate endorsed by Taylor Swift. There's going to be millions of new voters 
Gen Zers who are supposedly going to be voting and going to be influenced by celebrities. She has dipped her toe in this in previous campaigns in 2020. She said she was going to kick Trump out of the White House with her vote. She, uh, she got a whole lot of people to register, right? She went out there and encouraged a lot of her fans to register to vote. And, and that happened. Uh, several thousand, I don't remember the exact number. So anyway, the Taylor Swift factor in presidential politics, okay. We will keep our eye on that. All right, real quick, some uh, awesome news here. Elon Musk's ex-social media platform says they're going to have a 100-person office here in Austin to help police content. He's faced a lot of criticism for not having any, uh, or, or not very much, a content moderation on on X on Twitter. So he's planning to build what he says is the Trust and Safety Center of Excellence here in Austin to help enforce content and safety rules. A hundred full-time content moderators at a new location here in Austin. So we will uh, we'll keep our eye on that and and see how that plays out. And with that, sadly, we are uh, about out of time here. Big pro-life rally yesterday, by the way, at the, at the U.S. Capitol. The thousands of people reportedly were there supporting pro-life. And, and we're out of time here for today. Thanks a lot for being with us on News Radio KLBJ. Thanks, as always, to Garrett and team for your help today. The latest in news is coming up next here on News Radio KLBJ.